Good morning, my name is Isaac. Today's Bible passage is from Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Good morning. I love a great chalk talk. There's something magical about a chalk talk. I'm not sure what it is. It's, I, I guess it's the disclosure as you go along, isn't it? I'm going to miss um, Kelly's talks uh, as we leave. Well, today we're looking at uh, these few verses in Ephesians 4. Um, and the idea of living worthily. Last Monday was Anzac Day, and uh, on Anzac Day, we remember the courage and the sacrifice of those who have fought in war on our behalf, and especially those who gave their lives for us, for our nation, for our freedom. In my youth, in the 1970s, it was not really a big, as big a thing as it is today. There was always the big central city march. That was a, a big feature that we often watched. Um, but it wasn't so, as much a local thing. There were small local gatherings, um, but maybe that was because of opposition to the Vietnam War, I'm not sure. But today it's very different. Uh, a trip to Anzac Cove Uh, in Turkey is for some a rite of passage, isn't it? It's a big thing. And locally, crowds and uh, at commemoration services are much, much bigger than they used to be. It's a solemn time, isn't it, for our nation to consider uh, what people have done in going to war on our behalf. And the question it regularly raises, whether publicly or privately, is how can we live worthily of what they've done? How can we live worthily of their sacrifice for us, of their life's blood shed for us? Today, Paul appeals to us, to you as a church, Epping Presbyterian Church, to live worthily of the calling you have. He says in verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Our version says he urges us to live worthily, but the word he uses is perhaps stronger in intent. He begs you to live worthily. He implores you to live worthily of the calling. And he begs you because of two things. Firstly, because of the example he himself is setting. 
He is a prisoner for the Lord, he says. There's a play on words here. He is both the Lord's prisoner, his heart and his life have been captured by Christ. And as the Lord's prisoner, he is uh, now actually also in prison for the gospel that he is proclaiming as he writes. So Paul is an example of faithful discipleship, even to the point of suffering in prison for the gospel. And we know, of course, from our point of view, that he went on to death. And because he knows of how reluctant we are to be wholehearted in our discipleship, he begs us to not be slow to follow his example. That's one reason. Secondly, he begs us because of, he says, the calling we have received. Now, what is the calling we have received? What does he mean? We use the word calling in a range of different ways. A person's calling to be a doctor or a judge or some, usually some other kind of profession, usually. We also use it of missionaries when we speak of them as receiving a call to the mission field as if it's a call from God to go to the mission field. Or we use it of ministers and their call to the ministry. However, though we use it in all these other ways, the New Testament actually only knows of one kind of calling. It doesn't know those other kinds of calling. And that is, it knows only the calling of God for a person to become a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian. That's the only kind of calling in the Bible God gives, becoming a Christian. It's the call to submit my life to Jesus as Lord and to trust him to save me. We don't have time to explore that whole issue now, if you want to chase it up, look at Romans 8:28 and follow the cross-references from there through the New Testament if you want to think about it further. But the point is, if you confess Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Saviour, that really is because you are moved to do so. Um, sorry. If you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, that is because God has called you to that confession. He is effectively calling you through the gospel that was preached to you. Somehow, at some time, you were not a believer and then you came to the conviction that Jesus really is Lord and Saviour. And you were moved to put your life into his hands in submission and trust. That was the calling of God at work in you. The outworking in your own life of God's choice and election of you before the beginning of time. Paul, in this letter, speaks about that great reality. In chapter 1... He spoke about um, 
uh, how God chose you and how he predestined you. And he predestined you to be adopted through his own pleasure and will. And he redeemed you through the work of Christ, giving you the forgiveness of your sins. All of that took place in the past. You were included in Christ, however, when the gospel came to you, the message of truth. In chapter 2, he reminded you that you were dead in your sins. I wonder if we really believe how dead we were. We lived only to gratify our cravings. You deserved nothing but the wrath of God. You were without hope and without God in the world. You were far, far away. But the same God in his rich mercy raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly, in the heavenly places. You who were far, far away have been brought so near to him, the king. And later in chapter two, as Wendy reminded us as she introduced her prayer time, he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but God has called you into fellow citizenship with God's people to be members of his household, to share in being his holy temple in whom God lives by his spirit. Now, I wonder if you get the scale of this. Do you understand in your heart how great a thing has been done for you? A few weeks ago, Dean Stewart likened it to winning the lottery, going from poverty to wealth in a moment, astonishing wealth when you had almost nothing. Lotteries are not what he was recommending or not what I'm recommending at all, but you get the idea. What God has done for you is like winning a lottery. In fact, it's like winning a billion lotteries at the same time. But it's even better than that. You probably don't feel very different. But what God has done in calling you into a relationship with Christ is mind-blowing in its, in its dimensions. And so he says... Live worthily of it. Live worthily of such a great calling. The Anzac commemorations stir us up to soberly think of living worthily of those soldiers and their example, and rightly so. But how much more should God's magisterial work in bringing us from utter hopelessness into citizenship of heaven by his love and mercy stir us up to live worthily of such a calling of living as citizens of heaven to live truly as members of God's own household but how do we do it how do we do it well, our passage today tells us how. It's not the only thing to be said about it, but it's a crucially important thing. 
How do we live worthily? By living in unity, one with the other. Look with me at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is something we have because of all these things and it is something that we need to make every effort to keep. Literally, you are to be eager, even zealous over your unity as a church. Unity is to be something you are to be committed to. Now, when you hear this, I wonder what it means to you, this call to unity. What goes on in your mind when you think of unity? It could be the sense of some loose association with common aims, something like a club. Uh, Some of us know about the CWA. I'm not sure whether there are other clubs that you're associated with, the gaming club or something like that or the soccer club. It could be the sense that everyone is working together on a common purpose, perhaps. People get together to raise money for some person or some situation, doing some repairs, joining in some other activity. For some, it might mean that, you know, you're in a business meeting and when the vote comes for something or other and everyone's unanimous, you say, oh, we've got unity. But for a Christian, unity is very different. If we look at what he says in these verses, it's something taught us by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is what draws us together in unity. Our possession of the Spirit. It comes from your bonds of peace, he says in verse 3. He's talking about the peace with God that Christ won for you on the cross. You are bonded together with him and his work. Your Christian unity is built on even more than this. You have been made sharers in one body. That again is through the spirit. And you share together in that spirit, as I said. You were called to the same hope when you were called. All of you who believe in Jesus Christ have exactly the same hope together, a hope that lasts into eternity, a joyful hope and a certain hope. You have a trust in the same, uh, you share in one Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. You have the same trust in the same death of Jesus for your salvation. You have the same baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have the same God and Father whose fatherly care is pervasive among you. It's everywhere amongst you as his people. The 
These are very deep bonds that unite you. And you're going to share in those bonds right through all eternity. All eternity. And it is this amazing unity you are to jealously protect and earnestly put every effort into preserving in your living relationships with one another. But how do we do it? How do we do it? I hope you can see that as uh, that you as people in this church have far, far greater bonds of unity than the CWA or the gaming club or the soccer club or a business meeting. To preserve unity in one of those organisations requires a lot less of you. You know, if you're part of the soccer club, you need to pay your membership fee perhaps, turn up to a meeting occasionally, maybe um, provide the oranges at the, the game uh, every now and then, do a sausage sizzle occasionally, and generally be polite to other people. And otherwise, you can just ignore everybody and just get on with your own life. That's a unified soccer club. Occasionally, of course, someone comes along who is deeply committed to the soccer club and puts all their effort into all sorts of things and puts up their hand for everything, and the others stand back and say, ooh, okay, wonder about that. It's tempting to treat church like a club. Very tempting. Turn up on Sundays, give some money, vote at the ACM, go on the roster, but otherwise just live like any other person. But you have been each called to something far, far greater than any soccer club. You are now sharers in the household of the living God, brothers and sisters of King Jesus. And as much has been given to you, much is now required of you. Look with me at verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. These are the way of peace. And these are the ways of dealing with each other that enable us to live together and grow in unity. Let's look at them. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Now, in the world, humility is not particularly a great virtue. I wonder if you've noticed that. It's the person who steps forward, who makes a name for themselves, who is the someone in the world. But Jesus teaches us what a virtue humility is. Pride asserts itself, it pushes itself and its ambitions forward. Humble people take the least position and do not presume importance. They submit and serve gladly in menial ways. Humility does not presume importance. 
it does not presume a sort of superiority. Humility must begin with our hearts. We all need to ask ourselves if we are genuinely humble or just a proud person putting on a pretense or for appearances. Are we genuinely willing to submit to others? Are we genuinely willing to serve in the lowest place, to do the job that nobody else wants to do? Are we humble like that? Are we willing to be disregarded by people and get no thanks from them at all, be abandoned by them? Jesus was amongst us as one who served humbly. He is our example. It was enormously costly, but he looked for the glory that his heavenly father had for him rather than the applause of the people around him. The tempter had offered him kingly glory back in the beginning, but he chose the hard path of suffering and death for us as the Father willed. Mutual humility is fundamental to wisdom and so also it is fundamental to living in unity together. Gentleness, or better, meekness, the word can be translated that way, is not weakness, but strength under control that gives itself to serving what others need. Meekness is a strong man comforting a little child gently, a wise boss understanding the circumstances of one of his workers and helping her a mother understanding that their little two-year-old doesn't know how to do things and quietly helps and encourages. And the meek person is willing to receive from the Lord not only good, but also trouble. As Job put, uh, said to his wife, you might remember the story of Job, she said, curse God and die. Job said, shall we receive from the Lord not only the good but also trouble? Jesus himself commanded vast legions of angels and yet he used all of his power to submit to the lies, the lashings, the abuse, the nails, the scorn of his accusers. He suffered under God's hand terribly but patiently. Paul goes on, unity is built among you by each being patient with each other, bearing with one another in love. Again, these are two overlapping ideas here. In humility, if humility and gentleness um, or meekness go together, so do patience and bearing with one another. 
Patience is putting up with each other's provocation quietly and willingly with love, without stirring the pot. It is also enduring the sufferings that the Lord brings to us and willingly. Bearing with one another is doing what patience does, but in an ongoing way. A sharp word might come from a wife's mouth and a husband is called to patience without being provoked to retaliate. A co-worker has a difficult manner and you're called to bear with him or her uh, with love as you work together on the team. A huge enemy of unity is the way we so easily provoke each other and how easily the provocation is taken up and polite hostility, if it is polite, that is, polite hostility commences opposite sides of the coffee room, avoiding gaze, all those kinds of things. We need to learn the beauty of loving patience that doesn't give up on people and walk away from them because of the things they do or say. And likewise, where there are differences of opinion that can't be resolved, we need to bear with each other, not bitterly or resentfully, but with genuine love. Paul has to warn the Galatian church with these words. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out that you, or, or you will be destroyed by each other. That's chapter 5, verse 15. Paul calls us to respond to this kind of temptation by embracing our freedoms, believe it or not. Not to insist on our own ways, but to serve. We are free to do our own thing and we are free to serve. And so he says in verse 13, just a couple of verses before, he says, you, my brothers and sisters... Are called, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, as I said, it's been a great privilege to serve you over these three months and to get to know you and your different personalities and your love of the Lord Jesus. It really has been terrific. Um, thank you for your patience with me. As I leave you, I want to urge you with everything I have to take heed of Paul's words as we've looked at them today. God has called you Epping Presbyterian Church, you, all of you, into a profound relationship and an unspeakably great position of being citizens of his heavenly kingdom. He begs you to now live worthily of that calling, not in stubborn pride, not in quiet resentfulness or bitterness against one another, not biting criticism, 
not self-importance, but with a deep commitment to living in unity. And he has given you, you his spirit so that his mighty power shown in the resurrection might help you if you will do it. How do we do it? Well, it happens in the little moments, doesn't it? It happens in the actions and conversations that take place incidentally, wherever you are. It'll start after the last song tonight. It, it will go on at your, in your choice to come to supper down in the hall afterwards. It happens by humility, even if the other is not being particularly humble themselves at all. It happens in the gentleness and meekness, using what you have to care for the needs of another person, perhaps someone you don't know so well, the person who is in front of you, even if they're behaving like your enemy, yet you love them patiently. It happens by not allowing yourself to be provoked by foolish words from someone else, not allowing your pride to rule your responses to them. And it's seen in patiently enduring in a loving attitude with someone you might disagree with or find awkward or difficult. Indeed, all this is to be surrounded by and infused with a genuine love for one another. Let's pray. Father, the unity you have brought us to is a precious, precious thing. Thank you for your kindness in taking us who were lost far away from life and hope you have taken us out from under your wrath. You've made us your own. You've made us citizens of heaven, members of one household, one family household, your household. And you've built us to be the dwelling place of your spirit together. So, Father, help us, we pray, to live worthily of all of that. And Father, we pray that this church would be known for its loving uh, unity, that this church would be known for its gentleness, uh, for its patience, for its uh, bearing with one another, where people are genuinely cared about and cared for. We pray that people might see and know the love that this church has for one another. And we pray that they might see the glory of the Lord Jesus, therefore, amongst this, the people here. Please bless this church, cause it to grow in the gospel and uh, flourish through the work of your spirit, stirring up obedience to your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.